Greetings, and indeed, salutations. Welcome to the Silence is Golden podcast, your home for silent film. I'm Brett Odom. And I'm Bryce Odom. And we return to our journey through the great stars of silent film with one of the great leading ladies of the era and of all time, Gloria Swanson. I've been really looking forward to this episode, actually. Me too. It's one of my absolute favorite films of all time is Sunset Boulevard. And so, and they use actual clips of her in the film from her own silent film because she was a huge silent film star. And someone who made her name as a silent film star, she actually has two quotes on the AFI Greatest 100 Film Quotes list uh, from that movie. And And so I've loved her for a long time. So it was really exciting to see what she did younger in those silent film years. And of course that's why they got Gloria Swanson to come back and play the famous iconic role of Nora Desmond, the washed out silent film star who has an ill-fated return leading to the death of someone she of a young man she was obsessed with. That part is not true to life, but the part about being a former silent film star who had not made the jump to talkies uh, is true about Gloria Swanson up to that point. Yeah, and also, um, and so quick side note before we get into the film we're actually talking about. If you have not seen the movie Sunset Boulevard, you should pause the podcast, go watch it, and then come back and watch the, uh, listen to the rest of the podcast. It's that good of a movie. Mm-hmm. And then you can go watch it again for all the stuff you missed after, after you finish listening to the podcast. And while you're at it, you should watch, uh, go watch the film that we're talking about today, Shifting Sands, from 1918, which is, I believe, actually the oldest film we have talked about on this podcast. I believe you're right. And kind of the, um, if y'all have been keeping up with the silent films along with us, um, you'll also know something else that's nice about this. This is a very early in the days of silent feature films. It's only 45 minutes long. It's not a two-hour silent film. It is only 45 minutes. I think even The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, which is the animated feature film we talked about last season, uh, I think that's even even that is longer than this film was. I think it was Uh, still almost an hour and a half. Exactly. So so this is a fairly short film, but it's an amazing amazing film. Uh, And Gloria Swanson really shows all the things that will turn her into one of the great stars of the era. Because this is actually from, this film, Shifting Sands, is actually from the earliest, or the early part of her career. She is still working for Triangle Films. Uh, we are a year away from her working for the first time with Cecil B. DeMille. Uh, and, and this that, is... And uh, for those of you who don't know, Cecil B. DeMille is kind of a big deal. Yeah, Cecil B. DeMille is the big deal. Uh, he, oh, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, he's, he's in a, he, would be, he would be the defining, one of the defining directors of all time, certainly of that period. Uh, but she's... And again, side note, has a role to play in Sunset Boulevard. And, that, and that's, of course, once again intentional because his role in with Gloria Swanson, their, their partnership was the defining feature of both their careers. Uh, but at this point, when we're watching, it was Shifting Sands, this film, and Bryce, you're going to talk in a moment about the details of the film itself. Uh, this is actually, Gloria Swanson has been acting since 1914, but she's been acting in short subject films. So we're okay. talking about shorter films that don't qualify as feature films. 
1918 is actually the first year she did feature films, and she did eight. She did eight? Eight feature films in 1918 alone. So she is is absolutely, uh, you know, taking off, and the quality of her work is what catches the attention of several directors, which eventually, in the following year, lead her to being loaned to the studio uh, of Cecil B. DeMille and the beginning of their historic partnership. Fascinating. Uh, and, you know, and just again, as you said, her career is going to take off and really, really explode in this way. And she's going to become one of the, an iconic actress. The fact that she comes back to the Sunset Boulevard actually makes her one of the few truly great silent film actresses or actors who managed to make the transition. Also, she does it a bit later than most of them. Yeah, we're uh, gonna, and, and for those of y'all uh, who don't look at the list of podcast episodes on Um and to see what's coming next, we will talk about the greatest of people who made that leap, and that's Greta Garbo. Yeah. Um, but Swanson uh, mm. was as big as Garbo in the silent film era. Uh, so uh, this movie was really great to see that talent on display, especially that talent at, at the beginning of her career. Um, so I guess before we... Because yeah. we could we're, you, we want to yeah. talk about what made her so great in and, this movie. Absolutely. Um, so I guess let's go ahead and jump to yeah. and Bryce, the summary. Go ahead and take us through the uh, actual events of the film. All right. So Gloria Swanson is playing a character named Marcia Gray. Uh, and her primary co-star um, is uh, a character named John Stanford. Who is... Uh, and... These are two people from different sides of the railroad tracks. Uh, uh, Marcia is a painter. She's not, and she's described in a title card as not being necessarily a the most talented pa- uh, painter. But she's seeking something to say, and she feels like that should kind of pull its own weight, and it really doesn't for her, unfortunately. Um, John St- Stanford, on the other hand, is a man from the right side of the tracks. He is a very wealthy man. I mean, this guy is clearly extremely wealthy in the movie. But unlike his mother, uh, is actually someone with a great moral conscience and wants to use his wealth to help people. Uh, his, his mother would like to stay as far away from poor people as possible. And we also get Marcia's uh, sister, uh, Cora, um, who uh, is in, about, I guess, about half the movie. Uh, but she... Uh, she unfortunately is sick, uh, and we begin in the gallery, uh, an art gallery where Mrs. Stanford is trying to uh, buy some art, and she ends up buying a fan, a painted fan, for five hundred dollars, and that was five hundred dollars in nineteen eighteen money. So inflation will kick in and make that way more expensive today. Uh, and her son is completely bored; he has no interest in all these pet- petty things, um, but. Marcia comes in, tries to sell a painting. The gallery is generous in the sense that they don't think much of her work, but they do let her leave the work, and if anyone buys it, she can have the money. But they aren't really that enthusiastic about the piece. They won't pay her up front for the piece, so they don't think they're going to get anything for it if they sell it at all. Um, but what uh, Marcia... Uh, 
and, and there, there's a the way the movie's structured. There's a lot of times with some good dramatic irony happening, where uh, such as Marcia goes home empty-handed with no money, and she and Cora worry about what they're going to do for money. Um, and at about the same moment, John is talking about his charitable work and what he wants to do to help make these tenants better, these tenements better. While at the same time, his mother is sticking the ta- uh, the rent collector on the tenements, and that rent collector goes to Marcia's uh, apartment, tries to tries to exploit her. I, I would say he's definitely trying to get her to sleep with him in exchange for rent. I mean, he attempts um, to assault her, and then he and then when she refuses that, he he does attempt to assault her and uh, presumably attempts to rape her. Um, but she fights him off and he goes away. However, he drops his wallet, uh, while in the scuffle and he decides to call the police and accuse her of stealing his wallet. Marcia, uh, says it's self-defense. He was attacking me. I did not steal his wallet. His wallet fell out when he attacked me and I fought him off. The judge, unfortunately, is 1918. They don't really take the, uh, uh, the weight of testimony of a woman over a man at this particular moment in time. She is especially a poor woman, and she is thrown in jail. And she is uh, very sad and broken up. Obviously, she's going to jail. She says, well, my sister uh, is sick, and she is expecting me to expect me home. And a woman does decide to go, uh, is kind, and goes and checks on her. But when she gets to the apartment, uh, Cora has unfortunately died. And Marcia goes through three months of jail. She gets out. She tries to get a job. First guy says, we have your... Um, you know, she tries to use a fake name because people aren't wanting to hire her because she's a uh, convicted felon just out of, or a convicted criminal just out of jail. Uh, one guy says, look, I've got your whole record right here in front of me. Get out of here. And that guy ends up being really important, it turns out, uh, in the latter part of the movie. But he... Uh, knows exactly who Marcy is and throws her out. And she ends up being saved by the Salvation Army. The, this chunk of the movie really ends up being like a promo for why the Salvation Army is good and, and they you made, should this join is, it. And this is the second time they've made an appearance I found. They were also a major role in the Phantom Carriage. Yeah, so apparently the Salvation Army had some big pull in silent film uh, in the silent film world. Uh, but uh, she goes to work, for, uh, live uh, with and work for the Salvation Army, and she is helping the children as much as possible. And because of John's charity work, he actually ends up bringing, uh, has a friend with him. They're in, uh, looking at the different facilities that his money helps run, and he runs into Marcia, and he immediately recognizes her as the girl who was uh, selling the painting at the beginning of the movie, who he clearly thought was beautiful. And if you have seen pictures of Gloria Swanson in her younger days, she was drop-dead gorgeous. Um, So not a shock that he thought that. And he very quickly is like, I'm going to find every excuse in the book to uh, spend the entire day with this woman. You know what? Hey, bring all the kids to my estate for a picnic. Yeah, so he brings all the Salvation Army uh, orphanage kids. Yeah, so yeah. all yeah, so all the kids that Marcia is working with, which is a, not a small number, uh, come to the estate. And while there, they are having a pleasant day. Have, and but he can't contain himself. And he finally says, "Look, I am in love with you. Have been since I've seen you. And marry me, and we will help as many children as possible." So, uh, and she 
agrees to marry him, and we then have a skip five years later where they have been doing exactly what they said they would do. Happy and contented it's, years. It, happy and contented years. And uh, they are uh, helping children. They now have their own child. John's mother still hates him, or still hates her. And <laughs> it's... But other than that, th- uh, things seem to be going great. Until... One day, a mysterious man shows up. Mr. Dabney, I believe, was the name. I believe was name. Mr. Dabney, something along. Uh, Mr. Uh, that was I, what I have written down as well. Um, but Mr. Dabney comes in and says uh, to visit. I am. He says I am actually. Fr- we have a mutual friend in common. He sent me here, uh, and I need a place to stay. And Marcy is quite suspicious and. Throughout the movie, Gloria Swanson shoots people some fantastic looks, and she definitely gives one of them to this guy, and throughout his visit, she does not trust him, and it turns out it was with good reason. He's in fact, uh, they are very temporarily keeping a set of documents from the Justice Department um, in the, in their safe, and it's not really explained why um, at this particular moment, why he's trusted to do this, but they're trusted to do this. And Marcia tell, uh, can tell that this guy who's come in, Mr. Dabney, something, she recognizes him. She can't put her finger on why, but she recognizes him. And it turns out she, he's the guy who re, uh, kicked her out of the office. He knows that she's a criminal, and, she's, and he threatens to expose her to her husband. Everything you have will be lost if you don't help me. So he's blackmailing her, and she's very conflicted, but she finally gives in and agrees to give the letters uh, away. But she says, look, because the guy said, look, you just have to give them for a few hours, and then I'll bring them right back to you. So she says, fine, but the letters don't leave my sight. I, I, you have to take me with you. And so the mother thinks that there's an affair happening, and... Uh, tells her her son John. John runs off to his friend Major Willis, who's the guy who's actually left the letters. And Willis is like, "Nope, that's not what's happening at all. We gotta go to the police." So they go to the police. They get a whole crew of police, and they and what it's turned out is these guys are counterfeit. It's a counterfeiting ring, and they're trying to get documents to help with counterfeiting. And they open up the letters as the police are rushing to the building. Uh, trying to get there as quickly as they can. They open up the letters, and the letters are all blank. Marcia has played them all, and is refused, and she says, Don't, do you really think I would have betrayed my husband? And they're now, and now all the bad guys are starting, uh, in this layer trying to debate what to do with her. Uh, they end up, they th- uh, throw out the idea, we're just going to kill her, uh, and then they finally kind of settle on, no, no, we're going to try and re-blackmail whole, this whole thing. You're going to write to your husband, either bring the letters, or we're going to kill you. Um, and, but as they're having that realization, um, she makes a dive for a gun. Uh, she and Mr. Dabney are fighting over it when the police bust through the door, shoot multiple of the bad guys, including Mr. Dabney. But for a moment, you think that Marcia might be dead because she's unconscious. But finally, at the end, she wakes up and they live happily ever after. And of course, it turns out... That she was in on it the whole time. Yeah. Mar- Marcia, and we keep saying Marcia, but is it Marcia? 
It's M A R C I A. That was how they spelled it on the title Isn't cards. Is that Marsha? No, that would be M A R S H A. I think I can be spelled either. Anyway, way. I've been so saying Marcia the whole I, time. That's what I'm going with. All right. So, uh, but no, uh, they say it's like, oh no, she, we, we, we lured, she lured, uh, you know, she, we knew that if we put her, you know, she agreed to help us out because like they, uh, they could, she could play on them and you know put and expose them, and she was so willing. So she, we, we, we planted it all with the help of your wife, and so you find out that not only. You know, did she have nerves to steal through this ordeal? She's had nerves to steal the whole time. Oh yeah, it's there's a lot of there's a lot of great twists and turns, and especially that ending, especially in 1918. I mean, this is even before the 1920s when when the jazz age uh, jazz age really gives a lot of women um, the big you know it's the predecessor to the 1960s, starting to give women more control over their own own destiny. Um, this is you know, she. I guess you can say they tra- tracks back to World War One, um, and women going to the factories and all that. But this is not common in fiction at the time of women well, taking the lead role very, in, in the heroism. It's very genre bending mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. It feels like it's going to be a rom. You know, it's it's very Dickinsonian at the beginning, mm-hmm. and then it's a very much a rom- like a, oh, a romantic film, and then it becomes very Flaubert. It's like oh. The woman has a secret that is going to destroy the family, and she has to, she has to, and uh, in trying to preserve the secret, she destroys the family anyway, which is very Madame Bovary. And then it goes to straight up James Bond for the end. Uh, so it's like, uh, it really does mix a lot together. And this is all forty-five minutes. This is a forty-five-minute movie, and that all happened in forty-five minutes. And I'm sure if they they showed us going home, that Mrs. Stanford would still hate Marcia. Oh, absolutely no. Uh, the mother-in-law will not stop hating. Oh, she does not like poor people. It's, she does not like poor people at all. She calls the children, the poor children, coming for a picnic. Terrible people. They are children coming on a picnic. And they're terrible people. Yeah, like the only the on. only non the only non child who came with the children was Marcia Marcia. It, yeah, you I, you can say Marcia, but I'm gonna say Marcia this entire we're just time. Going, we're just and if I am the fool, I shall die on this hill. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, no, so it's like so it's like the only so it's like she called the children terrible people because they were poor. Classism, classism. I named thee, but. What makes this film, I think, so compelling, aside from its bizarre, it's almost bizarre twist and turns, yeah. delightful twist and turns, but bizarre nonetheless, um, is, of course, Gloria Swanson. She's the glue that holds this whole movie together. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and our, you know, it's like, because uh, the, the gentleman, and I can't even remember his name off the top of my head, the, uh, the actor who played her hu- plays her husband in the film. I uh, I don't have his name written down. I don't we have know. both managed to forget um, this name. But I this, believe his last name was King, though. But but I mean, this is also I think part of the comment I'm about to say, which is that she is the person in the film whose acting stands out consistently throughout mm. the entire movie, whereas the men are not doing a bad job. No, but Gloria Swanson. She's at the center is, of every scene. Center of every scene, and she is acting them under yeah. the table. She, uh, she's at the center of every scene, which also makes her so important to every scene because every, they the scenes are literally revolving around her. And if you go back and watch the movie, there's a a lot of times when she's on screen, she literally is in the center of the screen. Um, Joe King would be her husband. Joe King and Harvey Clark is the 
rent collector slash bad guy bad guy who uh, uh, who assaulted her and yeah. get, it, it's uh it's that guy okay yeah um but the thing that with silent film obviously one of the key things is you don't get the acting of your voice and so your body language and facial expressions is everything and I joked about this earlier that Gloria Swanson just shoots some people looks throughout the film but she really does her acting with her eyes is I think is what makes her stand out through the movie she has an incredibly expressive face and I sometimes I think she comments on as a character in Sunset Boulevard is the importance of the eyes in Mm -hmm. silent film and she of course was quite correct uh, the the way she conveys both desperation when she's poor and trying to care for her sister, the concern she expresses concern and care for her sister, the and then, desperation in the courtroom, and then the love and the contentment, and then the stress of the second half of the film. And and the compa- these are all compelled and, uh, by yeah, her eyes. Yeah, and also the the compassion and and the momentary small joy she has with the children that she works with um, with when she's with the Salvation Army. Um, but I I think where we see it most at play is once Mister Dabney comes on the uh, stage, because every time she's there, you have these kind of side-eye glances, the uh, just constant suspicion, what something isn't adding up, and she has this look that entire time. There's um, a scene at the dinner table where they're all enjoying dinner, and she is just, she is just uh, disconnected. And you can see, mm-hmm. even though we, of course, cannot hear any of the conversations, she has drifted off into her own world. She, I, I can't quite tell if she is glaring at... Uh, Mr. Dabney, uh, this mysterious gentleman has come, but she is certainly lost in thought and it's conveyed in her expression there. And also again, like just the kind of turning on a dime where she discovers she has this spine of steel in the end mm. and she just looks at, at him. The eyes goes, are almost mocking them. Did you think I would betray my husband? Yeah, they have the title card for that line, which is really great because um, it's what you want her to say. Because at that point, you've seen the blank letters. You, It's like, oh, wait, she played them. And so you, you really wish you could have heard, heard that line. But she get, has these great mocking looks um, that she just is giving to everyone. Like, yeah, you all suck. <laughs> I have bested you all. And you should have seen it coming, but you didn't, because I you thought I was just a another generic weak woman. Absolutely, and you know this. Everything in this film, and this is one of these. It's one of those remarkable things where you can see something at the beginning of an actress's career, and see all the things that are going to make her important. Uh, you can really see all that talent uh, that's going to become. She's going to have next, the following year. She's going to have male and female, which is one of her major films. Uh, the you know she's going to continue working with famous players and Cecil B. DeMille and director Sam Wood over the next several years, and these are going to produce some of her most important, uh, important pieces like uh, Zsa Zsa, 
and you know eventually uh but you know all of these talents also are the things unfortunately that you know in are going to propel her giant career but they become undervalued things once you can talk mm-hmm. and which is all the more remarkable because we're going to discover in the 1940s that my god this woman can act even when it's uh when she speaks uh, yeah, she, there's the great line and because uh, we will continue to reference Sunset Boulevard I'm sure to the end episode but she um, said so we uh, it's like but people want but people wanted voices and out and they opened their mouth and out came voices 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 we didn't have voices we had faces um, and she is you know clearly in the move in Sunset Boulevard she clearly has a superiority complex uh, for your character has a superiority complex over these actors who have to use their voice to uh, to convey emotion and um, and while obviously Norma Desmond is a very twisted version not only of Gloria Swanson but also m- so many other actors and actresses from the golden age um, that critique reveals why also she was so great she didn't she has a great voice that would eventually be heard but she didn't need it to communicate the full range of human emotion uh and you know and i think my favorite part about watching it was the fact that there weren't one great moment it was just fluid and a a long series of small moments that she did this in and, you know, it's not like you know, we're going to be watching the comedic actors, uh, both Buster Keaton um, and Charlie Chaplin this season as well. You know, those are, you know, slapstick is all about, you know, creating a big moment uh, that will leave you in stitches. Uh, this was a much more subtle, despite all the, the plot twists in the movie, the acting, acting wise, it's a lot more subtle. And I think that, I think that's an interesting comparison because you know what defines Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton is the physical comedy, and in many ways, Gloria Swanson highlights the importance of physical drama. Uh, what she what she did uh, was to use the entirety of her person to convey emotion, mm-hmm. uh, and she did that in an effective way in a way that some of the other early films we looked at in our pre- first season didn't necessarily succeed at. Uh, there is no central character to Battleship Potemkin as iconic and as compelling a film as it is. It's not, th- it is through other things mm-hmm. uh, rather than the central work of a, of an actor conveying things mm-hmm. with their with the whole, whole body. Uh, and as much and, as we love Lon Chaney, um, He's covered in, in in both the two movies we watched with him. He's covered in so much makeup that I mean, he still pulls it off in many ways, but the makeup itself has to do the work. Uh, it, she she the most she has the standard cake makeup on her her face, mm-hmm. um, but other than some dark eyeliner around her eyes, mm-hmm. you know, there's not a lot to highlight her her face other than how she uses it. And this is both similar to some of the other films we've looked at. Uh, this film is very much 
broken into parts. It feels like, in some ways, distinct segments mm-hmm. uh, in a way that we would not expect modern films to be. We would expect more transitions to connect everything fluidly. Whereas this yeah. does feel like you have distinction, the distinct... Yeah, I think there's four parts. Yeah, the four acts of this movie, yeah. But that said, unlike, say, you know, you know, we love all the films we've reviewed... But I think, like, if you look at the Phantom Hourglass, which, not Phantom Hourglass, the Phantom Carriage, uh, the movie dips in places. Mm-hmm. This movie, though, has there is no fluff to this movie. Right. It is one thing after another. Uh, for, it's only 45 minutes, and in a sense you can go, wow, that could be, you know, we could do so much more. But at the same time, it's... A really economic movie there's not wasted time in this mm-hmm. and it's and there's also not a sense that there's much more they could have added they really do tell their full story that you feel like all the characters are developed just as much as, as much as they 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 need to be developed you don't feel like um, they're leaving something out uh, and it's paced where again you go from you might be able to tell where one act ends and the next begins, and I think it's very clear it's a four-act play, but there is, there's no, uh, they don't slowly go into anything. It's we're and hopping from one to the next. I think the mother-in-law. Well done. It's, yeah. it's well put together. I think the mother-in-law is in fact a great example of how economic the film is, mm-hmm. because in so many films you have the mother-in-law who doesn't quite like and this is not a necessary part of the story. It's just there for comedic relief or something. Like, think about It's a Wonderful Life and, uh, uh, oh, and Mary's, George, um, Mary's mother does not like that she's marrying <laughs> George. She cries at the wedding. Not A being, little too hard. A little too hard. None of that is important to the plot of the story. Mm-hmm. It's just a funny thing. The fact that Marcia's mother-in-law doesn't like her is important to the story by establishing that sooner, you have already a character who is programmed to believe that whatever is going off between Marsha and Mr. Dabney, oh, it's an affair. She immediately assumes it's an affair, mm. and she therefore immediately goes to tell her son, who immediately and immediately yeah. plants doubt. And they have so creating this creating this character who already didn't like Marsha gave them the mechanism to create the drama, the interpersonal drama yeah. toward the end. Of and the story. create doubt for you as well. You know she's being blackmailed. But you also, so you don't think, you know she's not having the affair, but you do think she's betraying her husband. Or at the very um, least trying, yeah, she, or trying to protect the, her family. Her, uh, I don't think betraying your husband is quite the right term um, in her mind. I don't think in her mind, but I, I, I think it's very clear that the Department of Justice and her husband, I don't think would have seen the fair, fi- uh, fair. the fine point. But either, my, either way, though, the point is here... This character did not exist for fluff reasons. No. This character existed for the very explicit purpose to drive the interpersonal conflict mm. at the end of the movie. So that that is how economical it is. Every character was necessary to a point. We why did we have a sister? Because we had to f- exhibit the state of the poverty that Marsha lived in and the desperation of her circumstances. Mm-hmm. And the moment that was done and over, sister died. Yep. Uh, we were introduced to. Uh, you know, every character in this rather small cast serves a purpose mm-hmm. and only and serves that purpose for exactly as long and as much as they are needed. And there's not any fluff there, and that's really impressive in this film. Yep. Uh, 
And, but then we, that brings us also back to the reason that's all able to happen is they have one truly great dynamic character and actor at the center of all that, uh, and that's Gloria Swanson. She is absolutely just one of the greats of the period. It's why we included her in this list. All the people we're talking about during this season are iconic and important. Gloria Swanson may well be the number one, and perhaps at the end of this run of episodes we will have to rank our rank our chosen actors and actresses. But I would def- even if we don't do that, I think it's clear we can say that Gloria Swanson may well be is certainly a contender for the most powerful and influential of yeah. this group. And it really is, and we're not going to go into her the more sordid parts of her biography. She uh, has some famous affairs um, along the way. Many marriages. Uh, many marriages, many, many affairs. <laughs> um, suppo- uh, supposedly, Joseph Kennedy being the most famous of her affairs. Oh, yeah. um, but... What she also did, in, adi- uh, in addition to that part of Hollywood pop culture, um, she did help create the idea of stars, you know, of, of the Hollywood star. She helped create that idea. Um, Both as its, as its iconicness and as its source of eternal yeah, kind of, drama. It, you know, yeah, kind of both sides of it. The, the star that could be promoted as she was promoted throughout her silent film career. Um, but then also the fact that she ended up in the tabloid section um, and that Hollywood realized they could make money off of both. And um, they did. And they really did. Um, so she is uh, culturally, she's not just important as an actress, she is culturally important as part of helping create Hollywood as the monster and uh, cultural machine that it would become. Absolutely. You know, I will say this one last thing. You know, if we're looking back at any of these, most so many of the films iconic. Bryce and I, we both I think would agree to this statement. Never go back and remake the greats and the classics right. and everything. You know, someone in the seventies thought about remaking Casablanca apparently, and it was just like, what are you talking about? Yeah, they you know, did a TV you, movie or something. Why would you ever do that? Movie. Who wants to Who wants to see a remake of Casablanca? It's perfect as it is. No, and how this, could you replace Ingrid Bergman mm-hmm. and Humphrey Bogart? That's a, this one is early enough, and this is not one of her most important works. Uh, right. It's one of her early works, and one of that do show showcase her talent. I would be interested to see someone get a hold of this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, with today and I would love to hear that I icon- that line did you really think I'd betray my husband I would love to see, hear that mm-hmm. portrayed and then I would love to set them side by side and see how it stands up because this I think is it would be a, such a compelling romantic spy thriller of a movie mm-hmm. uh, and I would love to see what they could do with it and whether and how how it compares but like some of the classics, it's probably that's probably a million dollar idea that would bust, probably, and probably we would find that no one could have done it better than Gloria Swanson. And with that, I think we have about run our course here. Uh, you can of course find us at 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 uh, Silent Gold Pod on Silence Gold Pod on Twitter. Bryce, where can they find you? Uh, well, they can find me at jbryceodom.com or they can follow me on Facebook at jbryceodom or Instagram or, uh, or YouTube at jbryceodom underscore author. 
Uh, so plenty of places to fo follow me on social media. And uh, we, as we are filming this, the drama over at Twitter is happening. So um, we can't we'll, guarantee we'll, you Twitter will continue to exist, but this podcast will regardless, uh, and we'll update you. Uh, hopefully these episode when these episodes come out uh, before the end of the year, that much we will promise. Uh, at least start airing them before the end of the year. Uh, we're we're working on it. Uh, our lives are complex, uh, little beast. And he, so, he, and our technology has been giving us problems. Oh Lord! Uh, I will be getting a new computer hopefully before the end of the year, and that will help a lot of our issues. Uh, but we will. But we are going to do our best, and we will have these starting to upload into your stream by the end of the year. Uh, from now when we're filming it, and hopefully Twitter will still exist, and we won't have to be scrambling to tell you where else you can find us. Uh, but you can find us. But you can find us. Uh, in the meantime, I'm Brett Odom. And I'm Bryce Odom. And this has been the Silence Gold Podcast. We'll see you on the next one.